today. We are in Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, I would invite you to stand. We're going to read it together. I'm going to lead you this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying this, he ascended. Um, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of uh, regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of God. Uh, pray. Lord, thank you for your truth. May it fill us, strengthen us, guide us, and teach us, Lord, to do your will today. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Anyone here ever bought a new home, or maybe go back earlier in your life, uh, it was your first time ever to enter your new apartment. Anyone know what that was like? Do you remember that? I remember the first apartment that we got. This is not a picture of it, but just remember the, the first apartment. And, and I remember going into that apartment the day we got the keys, and we weren't quite ready to move in, but I remember going in and, and, and sitting down and and rubbing my hands in the carpet and thinking, this is, this is my new home. And it was just a great feeling. And I remember looking at the walls because they were freshly painted and rubbing them and thinking, oh, this is, this is my home, it's new paint, and this carpet is, is wonderful. I actually think it was new. And going into the kitchen and opening up and seeing all the cupboards and just imagining plates and cups being in there and looking at the stove and happy that there was a dishwasher there and looking into the rooms and just in my mind just imagining life happening in this place and at that particular time as I remember um, we didn't have our bed set up yet and so we slept on the floor and 
that was okay because I was in this new apartment and being on this fresh carpet was just wonderful. It was great. Um, there's a problem, though, and that is that that apartment needs to be what? Furnished. It needs some furniture. It needs some chairs. It needs some beds. It needs some lights. It needs some end tables. It needs some, uh, you know, some interior decorating, which wasn't my job. It was someone else's job. I just said, yes, that's exactly, that looks wonderful. Let's put it up. Um, you know what I'm talking about, right? But a, an apartment or a house was never meant to be left unfurnished. It's meant to have the furnishings, and it's meant to have the equipment necessary for that, that house, that apartment to be used and for life to go on. And so sitting and sleeping on, on freshly laid carpet or rubbing hands on walls that are freshly painted or, or sitting down and having a Subway sandwich in this new apartment was fun for a moment, for a season, but you can't stay that way forever. After a while, the newness kind of fades off and the carpet starts to get dirty and the kitchen counters start to get crumbs on them and it gets dust here and there, and sometimes the walls get scratched up, right? Even if you had no furniture, these things would happen. But there needs to be a furnishing. Listen, the apartment needs to be furnished. The question is, with what? And we, you know, these are obvious things. A microwave, dining room table, fridge might be handy, although they usually come with a refrigerator, um, a TV, um, Living room furniture, a lazy boy, you've got to have a lazy boy. What apartment is not without its lazy boy? It actually is the center of the focus of everything, right? Um, maybe a bed or two. Now listen, that's not radical. There's nothing radical about bringing furniture into an apartment. You see it all the time. Right, Steve? Yeah, yeah, he'll get back to me on that one. Um, but listen, I hope you can, you can catch the parallel of, of what's going on here. When you and I embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when he, when he drew us to himself and, and the, the impact of the gospel was fleshed out in our lives, new life was breathed into us, we sat back and we rejoiced. And the newness of life in him was wonderful. There was an excitement about it. There was this, this I, I'm, I'm now a child of God. I'm, I'm part of his kingdom. I'm part of his family. And this is beautiful. It's wonderful. But friends, God never meant for it to stay like that. And that you just revel in that alone. He wants our Christian lives or our salvation or this newness in Christ to be added to by the equipment that comes with knowing Christ as our Lord and Savior. We begin to furnish our salvation with the spiritual equipment that God gives us. So it's kind of like going to Home Depot. You and I go to Home Depot to, um, to you know, to, to to basically, you know, figure out what we're going to do in fixing up the house and stuff. And, 
And God is calling us to go to the Home Depot of the church to find what equipment is necessary in our lives so that we can grow and we can furnish it properly. Now, last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, or 11 and 12, I should say. And it says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, remember that was one office, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And what I stressed last week was that there was this, this call to teaching. And this is what God has called the church to do. It has called the church in particular to have a ministry of teaching so that it is equipping or discipling believers. And when those believers are equipped and discipled, it leads them in and ushers them into times of service and maturity. So we have this teaching, we have discipleship or equipping, which leads ultimately to maturity. You see it there in the text. The teaching is in verse 11, the discipleship there in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. This is what God has called us to. And I just want you to think about what we're looking at today as we continue on here from verses 12, really from 13 to 16. We start at verse 11. It's teaching to equip for the maturity of the body of Christ, and then whoosh, it breaks out here, and we get this wonderful picture of what maturity looks like. Now, um, it, you may be aware of this, but you can go to Home Depot, and you can go and take clinics, and you can learn how to do certain things in your home, how to lay tile, how to landscape, how to replace or install a ceiling fan, how to refurbish your kitchen cabinets, and on and on we could go. The problem is, if, if we men attend a clinic like that, our wives will say something like this. Hey, you don't change the ceiling fan before. You didn't change the ceiling fan before because you didn't know what to do. But now that you have gone to the class, you have no excuse. Will you put it up already? Right? Come on, be honest, guys. Ignorance is bliss, right, when it comes to stuff at home. Um, Sadly, I think sometimes we who are part of the body of Christ like to function on the level of ignorance. We like to function on the level of incompetence. We, We like to function on the level so that we don't have to be held accountable. It's better to say, well, I didn't know. I, I, just, I, I could never do that because I don't have the skills for that. But listen, God is calling us to be equipped. You know, I could never be a parent. Well, <laughs> you got a baby. So you better get equipped. You know, I just don't know what kind of a husband. Well, you're married, so you need to figure out how to be equipped. God calls us to be equipped with the responsibilities he gives us. And we've got to be careful that we're not setting aside God's training and God's equipment simply because we like to to live our Christian lives with the attitude of ignorance is bliss. God wants us to be growing. He wants us to be developing. He wants us to take responsibility for the furnishing of our apartment. Now, Sometimes we simply just say to God, I don't want any help. I don't want any help in my marriage. I don't want any help in parenting. I don't want to be helped in my witness or my inner struggles or with my abilities. God, I don't want really to grow, 
to be taught or discipled or matured. But listen, God's desire is that believers be equipped. And what does the passage say? For the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. If you are not being equipped, you are then causing the body of Christ to be immature. Did you get that? You and I have a responsibility not only to identify our giftedness, but also to identify those places where we need to be equipped because the body of Christ is depending on that for its own maturity. And we're going to see that fleshed out as we continue on in this passage. So we have, we have four characteristics of a fully equipped believer in this passage, verses 13 through 16. That's where Paul is taking us. And it's a wonderful picture of what God is calling us to. And you will notice that all of my headings here have the word pursuing. We have not arrived. And in fact, we will never in this life arrive exactly at the place where God has called us to. We are all in process. We're all in process, as Paul says in Philippians 2.12, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean working out how to be saved. That means now that you are saved, you are working out what that looks like and how to, how to build on that and how to increase this, this wonderful walk you have with God so that you are glorifying God in your life. So four characteristics of a fully equipped believer who is in process. Here's the first one. Pursuing Christian unity. Verse 13 says, until we all attain the unity of the faith. Have you heard the subject of unity within the body of Christ ever talked about? Absolutely. Um, the subject of unity is, is a, a big word. It's, it's a popular word. But the word unity in our culture, and even many times within the church, takes on many forms and means different things to different people. I'll tell you a little story. When I was at a conference um, in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, Alster Beggs Church, Parkside Church, they have a pastor's conference there, and it was a Q&A time. And someone from the audience from a southern city um, asked Alistair a question. He said, listen, we have this unity in Christ movement going on in our city, and, and uh, what do you think about that? And Alistair was like, you know what? Um, I, I'm all for uniting around Christ. It's a good thing, and we need to be doing it. And the guy was like really excited with Alistair's answer, and so he continued on. He says, yes. He says, I'm, um, um, what did he say here? The Maddox Society continued and explained that the churches from all denominations were joining the movement. They were setting aside their doctrinal differences and uniting around Christ. At that, Alistair said this, the more you talk about this movement, the less I like it. You can't set aside core doctrines that are in contradiction to each other and fool yourself into thinking that you have unity. I, mean, I was sitting at the table, this guy who was asking the question, listening to this, and countenance changed, but Alistair was absolutely right. Look at this verse one more time. It says, until we all attain the unity. Is that what it says? Isn't that what it says? Well, that's not completely what it says. This is the unity of the faith. This is not faith and talking about your faith, your, your belief, your desire to, to believe or your ability to believe. This is the faith. This is the body of Christian truth. This is talking about doctrine. Now you have to understand this. The buzz statement, 
within the body of Christ oftentimes is doctrine, what's the next word? Divides. God's word says doctrine does what? Unites. See, there's this false idea of unity. And there can, there can never be true unity in the church apart from doctrinal integrity. In other words, us truly going to the Word of God and saying, what does God say in His Word? His truth is the standard by which we come to our conclusions. Now certainly, there are going to be some things that we're going to say, you know what, I, I would disagree with you on maybe you know, what this is. And there are disagreements, for example, on um, you know, what... what uh, what the end of the days are going to be like. You know, is there going to be a rapture? Or is it just going to be a, an ushered kingdom? Is Jesus just going to come back? And you know what? I, I have my own personal convictions, but I know people that have completely different convictions, and that really ultimately is a secondary issue that we can unite together around Christ, but we can still have a different view of how things are going to pan out. Okay? Um, you know, there, there may be some other issues, too, that you're just like, okay, we, we don't have to argue on that. Maybe it's just a, a, an interpretation of, of some kind of passage of Scripture that doesn't have heavy theological implications. There are going to be some differences there, but there are core truths that we unite around. Is Jesus Christ God? Is that an important truth? All right? Um, absolutely. You know, what is the gospel? That's an important truth. If the gospel is, well, God is love, and his grace has been given to everyone, and, but it's this, this, this kind of new age, modern kind of grace, love thing, and it's void of the cross, we can't unite together because you don't know the gospel. And it's not like, well, you just have your opinion. No, open up the word of God. Here is what the gospel is. Jesus says it over and over again. Paul says it over and over again. The theme throughout the word of God is clear that the gospel is that God sent his son Jesus to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. And those who embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are the ones that he has drawn to himself because he is wise and he is God. There's far more we could say about the gospel. But we unite around. Now, we all, that would be every believer, are to attain, arrive, or reach the goal of the unity of the faith. And we're all to be contributing to this, in other words. That's the idea. We're all attaining that. We're all striving for this. We're all pursuing this. This is a collective all. This is the body of Christ all. The context here is maturity in the body. It's not just this individualism going on. We are all to be attaining this. So as we have been taught, as we have been equipped, as we are serving, we are then part of this process of maturing the body of Christ, in particular in the arena of unity of the faith. So the first mark of a uh, mature believer is that they are pursuing Christian unity. But there's more to say here. This is not a contrived unity. What is... What, is, what does it mean to be contrived? We're forcing you to unite. Set aside those doctrinal differences. Set aside those things that you feel strongly about. And just, you know what, let's just unite and say we're united because we, we want to unite. Well, that's force. That's contrived. And contrived unity is not true unity. 
It's a facade. And oftentimes, it's unity because there is some immediate purpose that the group is trying to unite over to say we're united, but it's void of gospel truth or biblical truth. Okay? It's a forced suppressing of meaningful dialogue. Now listen, when we speak the truth in love, we are contributing to the unity of the faith. And one of the ways that unity is built in a church is when people are mature enough to communicate their concerns or their ideas at the right time, in the right way, and to the right people. And you can say gossip and complaining are the behaviors of immature people and immature believers. So it's not just this, this contrived unity that this suppresses dialogue. But it is unity that is taught, I should say here. It is unity that is taught. And you get this, that there's this need for teaching. There's this need for God's word to be explained, to be expounded, to be applied, so that those who are part of the body of Christ are, are fed God's truth, understand God's truth, so that they can apply it effectively. And the basis of their unity is not their, their idea of what unity is or what the world calls unity. It's what God says that we are to unite around. But that needs to be taught. So that's the flow of this passage here. Taught, discipled, serving one another by uniting around these truths. So God uses you in some way to contribute to others growing in their understanding and application of God's word. Let me just share this with you. you know, some of you have said, you know, you know Rod, we, we, we love it here at Gateway. We want to be involved and I can give you some things you can do. There's always a need for people to help as far as set up and tear down. We have a children's ministry. There are other things that are involved. But listen, what's more important is that you are a participant in the things that we are doing that are the arenas of you know, biblical scriptural teaching, sharing your faith, encouraging others in their growth, praying for one another, coming alongside, being a friend with the gospel and with God's truth. And those, those are not, I don't give you a title. Say, well, I am a facilitator of friendship. No, you're just a believer. I don't mean just. You are a believer, and your role and function is to use your gifts to help build the body of Christ. You don't have to have a title for that. You don't have to be called, you know, you know I'm a Sunday school teacher. I'm glad that we have so many of you that are working with our children. That's really, really important. And you all, you all saw how many children we have. Praise the Lord. And we need to minister to them. They're part of the body of Christ. But listen, we don't have to have some kind of a program, some kind of a title for, to legitimize your activity and your partnership in what God is doing through our church. So you sit in a home group and questions are asked, and you bring an understanding and interpretation of the Word of God and its application in your life, and you share it with others, you are contributing to the maturity of the body of Christ. That's what God's called us to. You don't have to have a title for that. I am the official interpreter of home group studies. No. You're a participant. You're a Christian, fellowshipping with other Christians around the Word of God. That's beautiful. That's wonderful but we're so used to having titles. 
So unity in the church does not come from all of us being alike and having the same backgrounds and having the same opinions on things not specifically spelled out in Scripture. No, it comes, and get this, it comes from our common understanding and appreciation of core truths from the Word of God. Now notice the word until. Until we all attain the unity of the faith. What does that word until convey for us? Listen, the equipped person is not going to stop until the job is done. There's this staying at my post mentality or attitude that results in stability and maturity in the congregation and and, and they are pursuing and contributing to Christian unity over the long haul. Maturity doesn't happen overnight. You're not going to come to church or be in home group and all of a sudden, boom, spiritual zap, bam, whoa, now I'm mature. It doesn't happen that way. Christian maturity is a day-by-day steady process in growth in Christ-likeness. And you will never reach a plateau. You will always fall short until you stand before Jesus in glory and you will be everything that he has created you to be. We call that progressive sanctification, progressive holiness, progressive maturity. That's why we're all in process. And it's a beautiful thing because we can be sitting down together opening God's word and we're all at different levels in our growth. And we need to recognize that maybe someone in that group is at a different level than me. And so I'm not just trying to steal the conversation to have a level of conversation that's up here and lose the person's. I want to draw that person. I want to mature that person, right? We want everyone to be growing and maturing and and, and getting to that place where they are becoming more like Christ, which leads us then into the next characteristic here. The first one is pursuing Christian unity. The second one is pursuing Christ-likeness. Paul goes on here and says, until we all attain the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the equipped person is also attaining Christ-likeness. The first thing there he says is a deepening knowledge of the Son of God. Listen, if you have allowed your Christian Christianity to simply default into a set of rules and rituals, you're missing the whole point of what this passage is talking about. Maturity in Christ means, first of all, that you are having a personal relationship with him. Now, the reality is, if you want to stretch it, everyone has a personal relationship with Christ in one way or another. Right? You, you can reject him, and that's a personal relationship. I don't like you. I don't want you. All right? But we're talking here about a relationship that knows that Christ is God, embraces him as, as Savior, and desires to walk with him. It is a relationship. It's not just, well, God says there's this rule. I better keep the rule. No, there's a relationship. So I am spending time in devotion and, and prayer. And when I, when I struggle with sin, when you get angry or when you get anxious or whatever it might be, you're saying, God, help me. I, I need your help. I want your help. And you allow him through his word to conform you to what his desires are, not what your flesh wants. That all comes from relationship. There's Christian maturity here. To a mature man, it says, this is clear evidence of Christian growth. So, so is there evidence in your life that you are 
making progress? Are the things that you can see, you look back a year or two and you say, you know, I've, I've grown here. Maybe, maybe I'm not, I don't get quite as angry as quickly or maybe I, I don't struggle with this particular sin as much and I've made progress. And you're saying, you know, I'm applying God's truth. I'm growing in maturity. And then the last part here says, you know, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's a a comprehensive Christ-likeness that is going on. I use these three words. There's knowledge, there's growth, there's comprehensiveness in my Christ-likeness here. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Verse 15, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. This is what he's saying a mature Christian should look like should be pursuing Christ's likeness, pursuing who Jesus is and, and, and those attributes and those, uh, those qualities being true in your life. But that is a process. So how do you measure up to Christ? This text is not talking about perfection. Remember, it's talking about pursuit. And so a man or woman who is, who is simply identifying ways in which he or she is least like Christ is now getting whatever help is needed to get those areas handled. So the purpose of of many ministries is to help God's people do just that. So I want you to think think of it this way. Let's just say you struggle with anger, or you struggle with anxiety, or you struggle with with pride or perfectionism. You could put whatever it is that you struggle with and The reality is we have multiple things that we struggle with, right? But sometimes there are things that are dominant. Let's just choose one of those there. What this looks like then within the body of Christ is this. First of all, because you're part of the body of Christ, you have resources available to you, whether it's in book form, whether it's taking you to passages of Scripture that will show you in particular what God's Word says about that particular struggle that you have. Okay? Let's just take anger, for example. Because you're part of the body of Christ, because you are maturing, because you want to pursue Christ-likeness, you say, I'm going to look for resources that are available to me about what anger looks like and how I can grow in such a way that I am not always stumbling in that arena of anger. Like I said, that can be, there are books on the back table on that particular subject. And it's not that, oh, I want you to read the book, but the book itself is going to point you where? Those books are going to point you back to the Word of God. So this is what the Word of God says about that particular subject of anger, or if it's anxiety. Now, please hear this. There are some contexts, if I mentioned the word anxiety, they'd say, well, yeah, but see, that's, you know, I've been diagnosed with that. I understand you may have been diagnosed with that, but God speaks to it. What does he say? Have you even taken the resources available to you to see what God says about what the world labels as anxiety, but understood what God says it is and what the antidote to that is? There are resources available to you because you're part of that body of Christ. Now, it also means talking with others about your struggle. Sometimes those struggles are very personal and private, and we're going to maybe just talk to one or two people. Maybe it's someone that's in a counseling relationship with you, or maybe it's in the context of some kind of a small group. And you've shared, hey, I struggle with this. And you have people praying for you. You have people that are counseling you and helping you or asking you questions or looking out for you. So that's all part of what it means to say, here I have this struggle, identifying what it is. 
looking at the resources available for me in the body of Christ and saying, I want those resources to bear on my struggle and I want God's people to be a part of helping me with that struggle. And then finally, with gospel help and power, we are pursuing not being anxious, not being angry, and on, on, you know, ongoing. It's a pursuit. It's not saying, okay, I've read this book, and I've seen the Word of God and what it says, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be angry anymore. Well, okay. No, you're going to fall. You're, you're going to struggle. But you know when you do, here's what I need to do to get up again. And you make progress and progress and progress, and you have other people around you helping you with that. That's authentic Christianity that is rooted in the gospel. Okay? And that story doesn't mean that everyone's going to stand up here before everyone and say, well, I have these problems that are my sins. I'm not talking about that. But you carefully build relationships with people and you're working and identifying those areas where you need growth. So this is, this is all part of the package that God has given us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. So are you, t- are you taking advantage of what is available? Let's go back to our illustration about, about the apartment. You're in this fresh apartment. All you have is the apartment, the wonderful carpet. Now it's looking a little bit more ragged. Um, you haven't been able to clean it because you don't have a vacuum cleaner. But someone you know has said, listen, I have a vacuum cleaner you can have. But you're saying, ah, it's okay, I don't need it. But your carpet's getting dirty. Ah, it's, yeah, I know. I just don't want to bother you. All right? Or maybe someone says, listen, I've got a refrigerator, an extra one. You can have it. And I've got a couch, and I've got a lazy boy, and I've got a flat screen TV because I went out and bought a bigger flat screen TV. And you can have it. And you say, no, nah, it's okay. I, I don't need it. You see, it would be foolish of us to ignore the offers of people that love us and care about us with the things that they have to help us furnish the apartment. And in the same way, it really is foolish of us, and get this, it is sinful of us to stiff-arm God and to stiff-arm his work in the body of Christ when he is saying, here's what I want you to furnish this house with. Here's what I want you to add in this room. Here's how I want you to, you know, to, to spice us. This area, it's there for you. Take it. Take advantage of it. Use it. Grow in it. Yeah, I don't need it. But it's there for you. Are we pursuing a comprehensive Christ-likeness? Here's the third one. Mature believer is pursuing doctrinal stability so that we may no longer, which means that the possibility here then is that people were doing these things, right? No longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now, certainly when the Word of God uses the, the illustration of children, um, it's helpful for us to recognize it isn't always used in the same way, okay? Um, turn your Bibles to Matthew 18.3, unless, or is it in the handout there? Okay. Matthew 18.3 is an example of a different way the word children or the illustration of children is used. Here Jesus is speaking. He says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's the point of him bringing up that expression of children in what he is saying there? His point is to say, 
that we must have faith like a little child, to be completely and totally trusting. Here, though, Paul uses children in a different way. In Matthew, he's saying, I want you to be children. Here, he's saying, I don't want you to be children. Because the illustration of children is basically saying, I don't want you to stay in immaturity. I want you to grow and be adults. Okay? So just be careful that we understand that, that oftentimes Paul in particular will use a same illustration, but will have different purposes. So not every time you see that is it going to be the exact same illustration. So in our passage here, this children in Ephesians 4.14 is to move us away from immaturity. Now, remember this. We all begin as theological children. When you were first a new believer in Christ, you did not know everything there is to know about your relationship with God, did you? Did anyone? I'd like to talk to you if you did. No, you didn't. In fact, much of what you knew was borrowed. You learned some things, basically, but those around you said, all right, there's this, there's this, there's this, and you're trusting those around you and what they're teaching you, and you're holding on to what they're saying because, you know, probably you didn't come to Christ independent of everyone else. You came to Christ because there were people around you, and so you, you came into the family of God, and you were leaning on those people who have, who have helped you to kind of begin that walk, and, and so you lean on their wisdom, you lean on their understanding, but as you grew in Christ, what did you do? You began to come to your own personal understanding of what those things are so that you were no longer borrowing their, their convictions, you are actually embracing them as your own convictions. That's just normal, it's natural. But we all began as theological children. So what are the dangers then of not growing in our knowledge of theological truth or doctrinal truth? Well, he tells us here, first of all, um, the danger is that we will be tossed to and fro by, uh, by the waves. Yeah, it's incredible picture there, right? Anyone here ever gone swimming in the ocean? You know there are waves that come in, right? Now, let's just, take a, let's just take a little child, three years old, out splashing in the water, along comes a wave, you know? The wave comes, engulfs them, knocks them over, and might even suck them into the water, right? Now, as adults, what happens? As adults, we, we're, we're, we're a little stronger, so we know how to face the wave, if you know anything about you know, being at the beach, if you've ever been a lifeguard or, or seen lifeguards, you know that you face the wave. You dive into a wave, right? You don't let the wave conquer you. You, you, you know how to, how to jump into it. Not only that, you anticipate it. Children typically don't anticipate the waves, especially if they're three years old. No waves coming. Right? I mean, that's usually what happens. As adults, we're stronger. We have a little bit more footing. And we're anticipating, oh, there's a big wave coming, there's a small wave, here comes a real big one, all right, look out. And you brace yourself, and you, you jump into it, or you do something. And if you are caught in that wave, you, you would probably have the, the knowledge of how you swim back to shore. Children don't have that. That's the point here. They're tossed around by the waves. That's the picture here. The waves, and they're carried about by every wind of doctrine. That just kind of flash me back to Psalm 1 and verse 4 where it talks there about 
The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. And this, this image of the chaff, which is the husk of, of the wheat, they're just blowing in the wind. Okay? Children are like that. They just kind of blow here. They blow here. Wherever the wind blows, that's where they're going to be. So these incredible images he gives us here of, of those who are immature. Now, uh, I think it's important for us to note here then, um, and this is more by means of application, here are some things that immature believers struggle with. Number one, they tend to follow the crowd. You know, where am I supposed to go? Well, the crowd's going that way. I guess I'm going to go that way, right? Um, I mean, we're talking here doctrinally, theologically. Whatever happens to be the latest and greatest fad within the body of Christ or that is blown into Christian culture, they just kind of, boom, okay? Um, They tend to be distracted easily. You know, I've been working on my walk with God. Oh, really? Over there. You know, and they just kind of, they're distracted by different things that happen in their lives. They're, they're, they're not sticking to it. They don't necessarily see the long haul. The third thing is that they're easily deceived. They're easily deceived. Now, just one illustration of that, and, and if I share this and, and, and you're offended by it, um, I don't apologize, but I would, I would just ask for you to think through this. A number of years ago, there was this phenomenon that blew into Christian culture. It was called the Prayer of Jabez. The Prayer of Jabez was a prayer, very, very short prayer, one verse in the Bible, First Chronicles 4.10, I think it is. But it became the mantra of the church. And everyone was like, got to pray the prayer of Jabez. And the person that presented this and wrote the book about it said, you know, every day I prayed this prayer that God would expand my borders and bless me and keep me from harm and all this kind of stuff. And all the words are just wonderful and nice and light and joyous. And I'm going to pray that. I'm going to claim this promise. Well, God never told us to pray Jabez's prayer. And the way it was presented and what it was taught and the implications of, of interpretation there were so far removed from what Scripture actually said. But you could buy books about it, you could buy bracelets, you could get rings, you could get mugs that all had Prayer of Jabez and it written on there and it was blowing in and everyone's like, Prayer of Jabez, Prayer of Jabez. And we're so easily deceived. Because friends, it was bad theology. It was bad teaching. But it was popular. And it's what Christian culture was spouting. And people were excited about it. Now, God has a purpose for that prayer, for it being there. But that's not how it was presented. It was presented as something for everyone to claim and to pray as a mantra. Listen, God doesn't want mantra prayers, does he? He wants prayers from the heart that express the struggle of the day not just some formula that's going to give me some product. So we we are so easily led. I mean, you could could add some other things. I would say that the the emergent church movement is a fad that's blown in to Christian culture. There are some things within that context that may be helpful and may have been kind of alerting the church, saying, you know, we need to pay attention here, but most of it is just, is just going in a direction, has gone in a direction that really is moving us away from a gospel-centered understanding of what God's called us to. Um, uh, the whole idea of being missional can, can go in all sorts of different ways and can actually lead to a, a form of, uh, 
of liberal Christianity that is basically void of the gospel but doing lots of good deeds. Listen, in this passage, you see, what is God calling the church to do? What is he calling the leadership to do? To teach for the purpose of equipping so that the church would be mature and be then able to exercise their gifts for the glory of God. We could go on with that, but I'm just saying that there's all sorts of things that blow into Christian culture that oftentimes will lead us in directions that distract us from what God is ultimately calling us to, and that is our pursuit toward Christ-likeness. So what is driving the wind and the waves? What does it say? Every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. There's this human cunning. Literally, it means the trickery of dice. Not that they were, you know, like in, in Las Vegas, throwing the two dice down, but there was, they had weighted dice a long time ago. There was a trickery that was going on. And the word now has taken on new form, just talking about the, the kind of trickery that just fools people into thinking something is true that's not. Human trickery. All sorts of people use trickery to, to gain a crowd, to gain a following. And listen, you can go back a number of years. Remember some of those televangelists that were on? And they would have, you know, well, you know, I, I have a hearing problem. But actually it was a transmitter and someone was in the back and they were taking the cards and they were saying, you know, Sally Smith, you know, she has a pain in her, in her shoulder. And, and so, you know, they're wiring it into the pastor and he says, oh, I'm getting a message from God, you know. It was his wife reading off a card. And people are like, wow. God's speaking directly to me through him. And is there a Sally Smith in here? Oh, yeah. And you're from wherever it might be because it's written on the card. And God's telling me that you have a pain. Ah. On the left side, somewhere. Ah. In the shoulder. Ah. Right? I mean, and people are sucked in. But friends, it's trickery. Human trickery. Now listen, shame on us if we manipulate anyone toward the cross. It is the gospel that is the power, not our human abilities and skills. And get this, we want to have a nice atmosphere, but the atmosphere is not going to bring someone to Christ. So we can have candles all we want, we can dim the lights all we want, but those are not the power of the gospel certainly fine to have stuff like that if that's what you so want. But don't think, okay, we got the atmosphere figured. Oh, they're going to respond now. It's the gospel that brings doctrinal stability, not candles or curtains or stations around an auditorium or whatever it might be. And I'm not saying we need to do everything plain Jane. We need to do things well. But where's our power? That's the question. All right, off my soapbox. The bottom line is this. The equipped person is not theologically gullible. They know what they believe. They know why they believe it because they are, being, they are pursuing the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Here's the fourth thing. They are pursuing authentic living. Now, by authentic living, I'm not talking here about, you know, everyone standing up and bearing all of their sins before people. That's, that's not what I'm talking here about, OK? 
Okay, I'm talking here about verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Literally, it's saying truthing. It's talking about being truthful in our speech and being truthful in our behavior. This is the activity of the equipped person. Truthing in speech. Here's what I want you to think about. Are you able to communicate and solve problems biblically? Or are you relying on your flesh? Anyone here have any moments this week? Yeah. You don't have to think about relying on your flesh, right? Your flesh just kind of shows up. It's just like natural. Boom, there it is. And you're just beating it down. But a mature believer has learned how to beat it down more so that they can apply God's truth. So are, are you able to solve and communicate problems biblically? Are you able to articulate the gospel? Are you able to articulate how even your sin in the context of what's going on is something that God has forgiven? And because it's forgiven, that there is hope even in the midst and the chaos of all that is happening. So you go home and there's a blow up between you and your spouse and your kids and the, the, the whole house is just going, it's breathing out and in, out and in because of the anger and the, the, the voices and all that kind of stuff that's taking place, right? And you think to yourself, is this what God has called me to? What's the answer? No. He knows because of the fall, that you're living in a fallen world and that you're going to struggle with sin, right? He's called you then in the midst of that chaos to find the gospel, to humble your heart and to say, God, what is it you want me to do right now? Regardless of what anyone else is doing. Everyone around you is going, rah, 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 and you're thinking, I want to do that back but you're gripped by the gospel and you're saying, I am not going to do that. And even your decision to not do that sometimes can cause other people to do it more. But you're saying, God, I want you here. And so being authentic in your testimony simply says, God, I'm sinful, I need your help, I want to apply your truth in this situation. Even in the horrible, dark situation you're in, because Jesus is there, you just need to bring him to bear in the context of what's going on. And that requires humility on your part. And that requires a battle of the heart on your part. It's also truthing and behavior. Remember Ephesians 1 there began with this whole idea of a worthy walk, a behavior that matches the faith. And so it's not just my speech it's also in my behavior. So all these things work together. I want my behavior to be conformed to the image of his son. But is everyone's behavior always conformed to Jesus Christ? Can you say that even today, that you have lived 100% biblically and thoroughly Christ-like? Can you say that? All right. If you can, I'd like to talk to you. I want to learn. But usually there's a thought. There's a battle that's going on. But those who are growing in Christ like this, those who are pursuing maturity are saying, ah, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why did I think that, God, I, I need you to help me sort this out and, and to come to the place where I see my sinfulness for what it really is 
and seek your forgiveness and press on for your glory. And listen, all that's happening in moments in your head as you're thinking about the struggles that you have. You know, guys, you see something on TV that's like, wow, I didn't need to see that. And your mind automatically goes into battle mode. I didn't see that, God. I'm thinking about things I don't want to think about. God, help me. Forgive me for that one little thought or forgive me for even pondering that. And, and, and I seek forgiveness and I fight and I look away and boom. It's all happening momentarily. And a child of God is, is just going through those things day by day by day, moment by moment. I want to be angry, but God, I need you right now. This is what authentic living is. So when we get together and we're in homework, we say, well, how was your week? Oh, I was fine. Did you struggle with anything? No, oh, it's pretty, pretty even keel. Pretty good. Listen, there was just tons of struggles. Tons of times when you were fighting your flesh. Tons of times when you gave in to sin. And you said, God, I need your help. And you fought your way to do what God wanted you to do. Right? I'm just being honest. We all struggle with this. It doesn't matter what gift or office you have in the church, we all struggle with these things. Now, let's continue on in this passage because he says, we are, this is the important of each part of the body, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped when each part is what? Working properly. That means you. You're the each part. We are all the each part. And God is calling us to work properly as that part. It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when each part of the body is mature, Properly working, it supplies strength and satisfaction to the rest of the body. So what you're going through in that moment, yes, is about you, but it's not just about you. Because God has created you for his church. Getting a little ahead of myself here. We'll get back to that. It talks here about also equipping. Notice there it says, but every joint with which it is equipped. And the idea there is, is it is supplied. It's the idea of this army that has all of this equipment that is necessary. And if you study, if you study armies and battles, you realize it's not just about soldiers. There is support that is necessary in order for the battle to take place, right? You guys have been in, in, you know, been in the armed forces? Am I, am I right? And there are tons of things that have to go on in order for that army to do what it needs to do. Food, you know, all sorts of different supplies being, being provided there. That's the idea. So that this, this, this equipping here is talking about being joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. We're all bringing all the necessary resources to bear for the body of Christ by virtue of being mature, by virtue of pursuing the unity of the faith, by virtue of being Christ-like, by virtue of being stable in our doctrine. All these things are working together to bring about this authentic testimony of being God's children. Now, here are some parallel passages that uh, we want to look at. 2 Peter 1.5. I don't think I have them on here at all. No, I don't. 
Second Peter 1.5 says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. This, of course, is the tree of faith passage there. And it talks about to supplement your faith. Literally there, to equip your faith, to supply your faith with all these virtues that are listed there. Colossians 2.19, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through the joints and ligaments grows with a growth that comes from, or that is from God. And it's that word nourished. So think of your role as being part of the body of Christ as one who supplies and one who nourishes the rest of the body. Your growth and maturity is a means by which the rest of the body has all that it needs supplied because Jesus is supplying it through us and the rest of the body is nourished. All right, now, here's where I want to go next. Think of it like this. It's a reservoir. Here's Jesus, the reservoir, who then feeds the aqueducts. Aqueducts do what? They take water to all sorts of different places, and those aqueducts feed cities and communities and homes. You get the picture there? Now, the powers that be here in California are panicking right now. Did you know that? Because there hasn't been much snow in Yosemite and the Sierras and up north, and we are dependent on the snow and the rain to provide the water for the southern part of California, right? You've driven down I-5, and you've seen all the aqueducts. You pass through them all the time. All that water is being channeled down there into the valley, but also down to L.A. It's the same idea. There's got to be a place where it's caught, it's gathered, and it channels down. Jesus Christ is the head. He is the reservoir. He is then now passing it on to the leadership in the church who have a responsibility of doing what? Of teaching of, of taking the truth of God's word and teaching it and explaining it and applying it and encouraging growth in Christ-likeness. And so the body of Christ then is being equipped and in their equipping they are becoming mature. And that maturity results then in the rest of the body being nourished and satisfied. Now if you think your relationship with God is just an individual matter, this scripture tells you not so. This is why the corporate church, the body of Christ, the gathering of God's people is so absolutely necessary. It is precious. You are, as a child of God, a channel of God's grace to equip others in the body. And this is what I was saying earlier. In our individualistic culture, um, we often think of the church was created for me, but it wasn't. I mean, listen, people go to churches, visiting churches, and they say, does it have this, does it have this, does it have this, does it have this, because I want that church to meet my needs. And typically you go into a church, and the church will say, listen, we're here to do what? We're here to meet your needs. It's a consumer mentality. You weren't created for the church. Or I should say the church wasn't created for you. You were created for church. Now, as a church, we're, we're trying to, to meet basic needs, obviously as a startup church, 
there's only basic needs that we can provide. But we're not here saying, you know, look at our children's ministry. It's so wonderful. It's so great. Right? You know, look at our great band. Isn't it fantastic? Wow. We just want to wow you with our music. And, you know, Pastor Rod, you know, he's got degree over degree over degree. And, you know, he is, he's got a head full and we never have to worry about him drowning in the shower because his head is always going to get stuck in the drain. <laughs> Listen, those are all things that are distractions from what the church needs to be. And when God's people recognize that the church wasn't created to meet all of their needs, that it was created so that they could come and participate and be involved and find their place and then mature the rest of the church, it changes the whole dynamic of what God has called us to. You know, well, I'm not getting my needs met. Well, what do you mean? What does is, what is your needs being met mean? Is the gospel being preached? Is the gospel being demonstrated as the reason by which you are to live and, and showing that all the struggles that you're facing are rooted and their solution, I should say, is rooted in the cross and that, that they're framed in an understanding of what God is doing? Your needs are there to be met. The problem is you don't want them to be met the way God wants them to be met. You just want to be a consumer. Take care of me here, take care of me here, do this for me, make me feel good. When what God says is, here's the word, take it, love it, study it, embrace it, live it, allow it to affect you. See your sin for what it really is, paid for but still present with you. And that your life is this pursuit to become like Christ. And here's how you can move from this place of, of struggle to this place of maturity. Come and be a part of it. Allow the church to help and to nourish you along that path. You were equipped by God to be a blessing to the church, to be a channel of grace to others who need to be equipped, and to raise the level of maturity in the church. It's a wonderful thing. So where do you fit in the church? You are a member. Joined together. All right? Working together with other people who are just like you, struggling with their sin, struggling with their flesh, thankful for God's forgiveness, growing their understanding of Christ-likeness, striving for unity in the faith, trying to avoid any kind of you know, doctrinal blowing and that kind of stuff, finding their stability with, with, with a doctrinal awareness and just being authentic in their testimony. That's what God says we are if we are a group of people who are maturing in Him. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Are you pursuing Christian unity? Not unity, Christian unity. Are you pursuing Christ-likeness? Are you pursuing doctrinal stability? Are you pursuing authentic living? And I don't mean this disparagingly necessarily, but are you sitting in your apartment still rubbing the carpet and still smelling the paint when God says, equip it, equip it, equip it? God wants that house, that apartment, 
your relationship with him to be equipped. It's a lifelong call. It's a lifelong responsibility God has called the church to do and to be a part of. And you are all a part of that. Lord, help us today to consider the words that Paul is sharing so that we can understand, Lord, the importance of what it means to be a member in the body of Christ, not always looking out to be serviced, although there will be times when that is true, but, Lord, to be used by you for the purpose of maturing others in Christ. And, Lord, sometimes we've neglected the fact that you've gifted us in many ways. We've set aside some things. Maybe we have a gift of teaching. Maybe we have a gift of song. Or maybe we have a gift of, of, of instruments. Or maybe we have the gift of helps or hospitality. All sorts of different things, Lord, that you have given us, but, but we let them be dormant in our lives. Sometimes we go bury them in the, in the ground. We, just, we don't want to unearth them because we're fearful of the responsibility and the accountability that we would have before you. But Lord, you say, I want not only for you to be equipped, but I want you to be an equipper of others with the exercise of your gifts. Lord, help us to see that and help us to embrace it and help us to long to grow in that to do that, Lord, for your glory. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.